All right, take your Bible and uh, put your finger in Ecclesiastes 2, but go back uh, to the very, very back of the book, Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Uh, excuse me, if you would. Uh, tonight, again, uh, we, uh, we have a limited time. This might not matter to you, it matters to me. Uh, we only have so many weeks before we start our next uh, age-specific classes, and that'll happen uh, somewhere in the beginning of next year, a couple months into the year. Uh, but I've got 12 chapters, and I've got 11 weeks, so I can't afford uh, to lose another week on this particular book, and I don't want to. And so we kind of had to make that pivot. Like I said, we're going to go after Simeon and Anna next Wednesday night outside. Lord willing. And if we're not outside, uh, then maybe we'll just come back in and we'll save that for another time. But uh, we've got a lot to cover tonight. Ecclesiastes chapter two is a powerful, uh, powerful, powerful chapter. If I had to read, um, and I think I can say this, I'm, I'm, I'm very familiar with the book. I've preached through it before. I've studied it at great length leading up to uh, this particular series. But I think I can say this with, with at least my own authority. If I could only read one chapter uh, to someone out of the entire book, I would read chapter two. Uh, chapter two is powerful. It is packed. Um, I'm going to give you kind of an illustration that'll help us track. It's a little bit like the menu um, at a restaurant. You go to a restaurant you've never been. You kind of peruse uh, the menu and you think, well, that kind of sounds good to me. Or, you know, that one might sound good to me. That one doesn't sound good to me. And uh, essentially what Ecclesiastes chapter two is, it, you can treat it like a menu uh, where Solomon just goes down and says, hey, I tried this and I tried this and I tried this and I tried this. And there's some wild things on there that he tried, uh, pools and water and trees and all kinds of stuff. Uh, but there, while it might sound a little bit out of touch with reality, I think with uh, the guidance of the Holy Spirit, we'll find the application to our own hearts and lives uh, because there's going to be some things on that menu you, your flesh is going to say, yeah, but I think that could make me happy. Uh, you're going to peruse the menu with me tonight. And uh, Lord willing, you're walking with God. You love Jesus. Your heart is full. There's no God-sized hole in the center of you, though that might be the case. Um, but as we walk through this, here's what's going to happen. Your flesh is still intact, just like my flesh is still intact. And your flesh is going to say, yeah, but that one looks pretty good. Um, my wife and I were just sitting down to a, a, an Asian restaurant we had never been to. And, and uh, we were going through and she was saying, oh, that one looks good. And I'm like, I don't think that looks very good. And we're going to do that tonight. There's going to be some things on this list. You think, yeah, gardens, that really wouldn't do it for me. But some of you ladies might think, you know, if I could just do, that would make me happy. And we're going to walk through that menu tonight and see some things that Solomon, who had all the wisdom and and all the wealth and all the ability and opportunity, uh, if he couldn't find happiness in those things, the fact of the matter is, neither will we. Uh, but let's go ahead and pray and ask God's blessing. And I need your prayers. Would you pray for me tonight? I want to walk through this book correctly, and I want to be able to uh, properly understand it with you and uh, properly exegete it, properly teach it and preach it to you tonight. And my um, hope, again, like I said, if there was one chapter we could work through, it would be chapter two. Uh, it preaches itself essentially. So let's pray and ask God's guidance. Lord, would you meet with us tonight? I pray, Father, that we would enjoy the service tonight. I know, God, that uh, our hearts were on a little bit more uh, uh, levity this evening and uh, some fellowship and some, uh, some singing time. But really, the, the hope of it, I, I still think, would have been the preaching and the study of the Word. And, uh, Lord, I've got a heart full of things to say about Simeon and Anna and just some powerful truths in that passage. I pray, God, that you'd help me, Lord, be able to uh, kind of dwell on those things even a little bit longer this week as we get ready for it, Lord willing, if you'll allow us next week uh, to get some fellowship in and that fire time. But tonight as we're here, I pray, God, your hand of guidance. I pray your hand of blessing and clarity. I pray, Father, as we move through the text, that you'd give us a 30,000-foot view down on life, uh, life under the sun, as Solomon calls it, uh, so many times in this uh, short book, uh, asserting what life is like when we live it for this world and we never think of the next. And so I pray, God, that we would be good stewards, uh, Father, to learn from the folly of another man, to learn from the folly of the wisest man to ever walk the earth outside of your son. 
I pray, God, that you'd give us great wisdom and clarity, God. Just direct our hearts, direct our steps. Uh, Father, bring in the illustrations where needed to our own hearts and lives. Make it personal and applicable to us personally, God. Would you guide us and be with us in Christ's name we ask. Amen. Now, last week, like I said, we started into chapter number one, and uh, I feel like some, I talked to some folks after the service, and uh, uh, the book of Ecclesiastes can be a, a, a heavy one to swallow. It's a powerful book in what it has to teach us, but it's also a painful book in just the, the kind of that it pulls off the blinders of our eyes. Uh, sometimes ignorance is better, at least we think it is. Sometimes walking through life thinking that there's actually value in something that there's no real value in makes us feel like, hey, you know, just, just don't look at it, don't pay attention to it. Just everybody else is kind of walking on the same road. Everybody else seems happy on social media. I'm happy too. But inside of our hearts, if we were to take a real honest and wise look, which is what Ecclesiastes possesses, we would realize how painful and the vexation of spirit, vexation of soul that uh, this particular book brings to us. And so uh, we don't know the extent of how true this statement is, but this whole book is a forced conversation with life's greatest critic. Uh, the man that across the table from us, if you'll use that illustration with me, seated across from us is the world's greatest life critic. And just like a restaurant critic would go to a restaurant and be able to pick apart, you know, uh, the underside of the table was sticky and the, you know, the water was two degrees off and they could just pick every single thing apart in a restaurant. Solomon in all of his God-given wisdom, can pick apart every critique and every observation of life. His view is overwhelmingly negative. Uh, one of the church members said it this way last week. It's not even that the glass is half empty. It's that the glass is totally empty and the glass is fake. And uh, it's just dumb. And uh, that's kind of what the book is about. It's just a difficult look at life. But the worst part about the book, he's right in every one of his observations. That it truly is an empty life under the sun. It truly is a vexation of spirit. It truly is a forced labor that God has put upon the sons of men to be tried therewith. And so that is a difficult book to read. Uh, last week, we learned a couple things. Let me just kind of recap with you. We learned, number one, that nothing is truly defensible. You cannot defend the things that you have. He used the illustrations of the sea giving up its rain and the rain giving up its water to the rivers and the rivers have to give up its water to the oceans. There's nothing that can be kept. We learn number two in chapter number one that nothing is new under the sun. You're never gonna accomplish something that someone hasn't already accomplished. The only reason you feel like it's new, the only reason you feel like you've accomplished something grand is because you've time just erased what the guy did before you. Time erased that the guy climbed that mountain already or that somebody else owned that building or somebody else sat in that corner chair and you feel like, man, this is the greatest accomplishment ever. It's really not. Somebody's already done it and somebody will do it after you're gone. Uh, there is nothing new under the sun whereby you can try and experience some great joy. We also learned lastly last week that even in all of Solomon's wisdom, he looked at life and said that the crooked places cannot be made straight. Uh, even knowing how, even knowing the problem, even diagnosing the problem, even being able to see with clear eyes that this is a rat race and this is dog eat dog and we're all going to go to the same place. Even seeing all of that does not change the variables that life is, an, is this exercise uh, of futility that God has chosen to exercise the sons of men with is the phrase that Solomon uses. So in order, and I said it again, I said it last week, I'll say it one more time. Surviving this book requires a robust Christology, uh, a firm grasp on Jesus, you've got to keep your head in heaven, your heart in heaven, and realize that, yes, we are going to be underwater in this book, but we have a snorkel as Christians, right? We get to breathe the air of heaven, that while he looks at life and possessions and, and even, even some instances of family, and he looks at accomplishments, and tonight we're going to see he'll look at all these different things that you can try, and, and he'll say, all of it's empty, but to a Christian, that's not exactly true, that there is some meaning in our possessions, 
that there's great meaning in our relationships, that there even can be meaning in, our, in the homes that we live in and the gardens that we plant. There, I saw somebody came in tonight with a bunch of grapefruits, right? Uh, that's a garden that somehow, by God, in partnership with him, will have some eternal profit. Uh, you're giving, and you know, it's a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple. So please keep that in mind. Please don't be discouraged. I talked to one or two of you last week that were a little bit discouraged after the book. That's not the heartbeat, though that's where life will take you. That's what life looks like under the sun. And so remember, you got to snorkel. You're breathing the air of heaven. You're living under the reality of Jesus. This is a man living outside of the reality of uh, life under heaven, and he's just living life under the sun. And again, this chapter serves as a bit of a menu for all of the things Solomon sets out to fill that void with. And that again is the heartbeat of the book. Solomon's backslidden. He's chasing what he once had in his relationship with God. And he's gone after strange women and their gods as well. And he wanted what he already had. And that can be true of you this evening as well. You might be here and your relationship with the Lord is just not where it should be. Uh, Maybe you have been running from God. Maybe you've just been letting that relationship slowly die on the vine. And you want that joy and you want that peace and you want that purpose. And you want life to have just this this groundedness that you one time had. And and for some reason, because I think just because we're humans, we, we, we can't remember why we had it. We credit to all other things. Well, maybe life was so good because we had more money or my husband had a different job. No, life was at its greatest when you were closest to your creator. And Solomon, all he has to do is go back and return to that beautiful place with his creator. That place that uh, uh, what, what Solomon is looking for can only be found in the place that he already had it. So uh, uh, we're going to look at this chapter number two. Uh, there's nothing else on the menu that you're going to look at as we go through this um, that's going to actually bring you some measure of satisfaction. But let's go ahead and read the menu. Like I said, because some of the things you're going to find, your flesh is going to find appetizing. You're going to look and say, you know what, that might be good. And that might actually make me happy, which is why God gave us the book. God gave us this front row seat to this, I would call it like Olympic level backsliding. I mean, Solomon's doing whatever he wants to the highest degree he can. I mean, if there was a gold medal for backsliding, Solomon's gonna get it, right? He's the guy who builds the temple for Molech, child sacrifice, anything he wanted, he did. And so, and yet in all of his backsliding, God allowed his wisdom to stay with him. Why? So you and I could see that there's nothing on the menu that's gonna make us happy because the critic himself is gonna test everything and say, there's nothing here, all right? So let's get after it. Look at verse number one, if you would, uh, Ecclesiastes chapter two. He said, I said in my heart, go to now, I will prove. That's an important word. That word prove means to test, to explore. It's kind of like when God proves you, he's testing the, the metal of your heart. He's testing what's on the inside. And he says to his heart, hey, go to now, I will prove thee, with mirth. And there's a couple words. Like I said, you got to define the word prove. It means to explore, to investigate, to try to find. He says, I'm going to prove you with mirth. Now, mirth is another very important word you got to understand. Vanity is another word. We already seen it. We'll define it in a second again. But the word mirth means this, sensory joy, experiential joy, something from the outside that stimulates you on the inside to a joy level. So doing stuff, having stuff, tasting something, going somewhere, something I can touch my my senses, all five of them or just one of them can engage in the process of having this thing. And so Solomon says, hey, listen, I'm gonna prove my heart. I'm gonna test, I'm gonna search. uh, I'm gonna go everywhere that sensory experiential joy can take me. Keep reading verse one. Therefore, enjoy pleasure. He says to his heart, hey, listen, 
We're going to go everywhere we can. And you know what? Harp, go ahead and enjoy it. Take it in. Enjoy every experience you can possibly have. And that, that would be what we would call the menu. It's the menu of mirth, if you will. Experiential joy. Anything that I wanted, Solomon says, here is the menu of it. And behold, here's his synopsis before he even gives us the menu. This also is vanity. And vanity, again, means pointless, empty, and meaningless. It goes nowhere. Hey, every experience I could have, he says, before I even tell you what I tried, let me just tell you, nothing on the menu has any purpose or meaning to it. Verse 1, like I said, is essentially a summary of the whole chapter. But let's go ahead and start down the menu with an open heart and say, hey, maybe I believe some of these lies, or maybe I've been drawn into temptation to believe some of these things. Look what he tries. Verse number 2, and I would say, I feel like he hits the age groups and the genders in, in specific ways. And I don't want to pick on anybody and say, well, your ladies are materialistic and men are driven by accomplishment. But some of these things are just observably true, uh, more true of one group than the other. But the first group, I would say young people, you need to pay attention close to this one. Look at verse number two. He says, I said of laughter, it is mad, and of mirth, what doeth it? So menu option number one, just having a good time. Laughter, I just, I just want to have a good time, pastor. You know, and teens have had many different things, and I'm not even going to try to guess what they say now, but, you know, you only live once, and all these different kind of statements, these pithy statements that young people have come up to say, just, I just want to enjoy life. I want to sow my wild oats. I know that's not what young people say. That's what old people say about young people, but uh, just getting out there and just experiencing life, to have laughter, to enjoy comedic relief. How many of you enjoy to laugh? Now, here's the thing. Some of you didn't raise your hand because you don't enjoy laughing. That's okay. Here's the thing. You have a snorkel uh, as a Christian. So the Bible says, hey, a merry heart doeth good like a medicine. And you're like, yeah, but laughter does have some benefit. Yes, to a child of God who has joy and real levity inside of them. But Solomon's not in that headspace. Solomon's over here running from God, trying to fill it with just pure entertainment, pure, pure laughter, uh, just experiencing some kind of uh, uh, joy and, and uh, a good time. But notice what he says. What doeth it? Look at verse number two at, the, at the, the middle part there. I said of laughter, it is mad and of mirth. What doeth it? So what's it for? So let's just, let's just be really uncomfortably honest. What good is laughter? Like, it, like in, the, in just the stark reality of it. Let's say you've got cancer. Does laughter make that go away? Let's say you've got a rebellious son or daughter. And you can watch a comedic sketch. And let's, I'm not even talking about uh, filthy comedic sketch. You can watch a good, clean, there's some good, clean comedy out there. You can watch a good, clean, clean uh, comedic show, but, but the heartache is still there when it's over. It doesn't change the emptiness of a life lived for self. Laughter doesn't do anything. In fact, he says that it is mad. It's crazy. It's lunacy to think that laughter makes your life have any real purpose or point. And so you young people who think maybe, hey, I'm going to get out of my house. I'm going to go do what I want. I'm going to go experience. I'm going to laugh with my friends. I'm going to have a good time. I'm just going to live it up. Well, Solomon already tried that menu item. And he said it's crazy to think that it takes away the emptiness of life. And the, the fact of the matter is, anyone in this room who has experienced true deep loss knows that's true. The laughter under the sun is simply a band-aid on a mortal wound. If you've lost someone or you've experienced some deep tragedy, yeah, sure, you can laugh, but you're going to cry yourself to sleep anyway. You can spend an hour and enjoy some time with friends and then go home, and that emptiness and that void is still very, very present. And Solomon is being absolutely uncomfortably 
honest with us that laughter in a moment does not take away the meaninglessness of a life lived under the sun. Look at verse number three. He's going to continue down the menu. I sought in my heart to give myself unto wine. It's crazy to me. Solomon says, hey, I'm going to drink myself happy. You ever meet anybody like that? Maybe you were like that. Maybe, God forbid, but maybe you are that person. But notice what he says. I sought in my heart to give myself unto wine, yet acquainting my heart with wisdom and to lay hold on folly. And this actually comes up a couple times, and so we'll point it out later on. But essentially what he says is, hey, I wanted to try doing it right, and I wanted to try doing it wrong. I want to, and when he talks about wisdom, uh, for the most part, he's going to be speaking about the wisdom of the world, not necessarily the mind of God. We gave two definitions last week that wisdom just means this is how the world works, right? To look at a situation and just know, yeah, this is, this is how the world works. Then there's a godly level wisdom, and we'll see some of that in some New Testament commentary tonight, that says, hey, this is how God would look at a situation. And so when Solomon says, hey, I wanted to know wisdom and folly, he's not saying, I wanted to do it God's way and I want to do it my own way. They're both his own way. But he says, I want to try to do it the right way, and then I want to just throw all caution to the wind and experience the foolish side of living. But notice what he says. Yet acquainting my heart with wisdom until I hold on folly, till I might see what was that good for the sons of men, which they should do under the heaven uh, all the days of their life. He says, I'm going to search out over all creation, the left and the right. I want to search out the right way of doing life and the wrong way of doing life so that I can figure out what the sons of men should do. And that's a beautiful thing. Uh, well, it is for us. It's not for Solomon. Solomon, like I said, is on this giant expedition to find what makes man happy. The problem is he's going to wade through every conceivable menu item when he already knows. And if you know the book, and I'll tell you this, I, uh, if, if this book ever gets too heavy for you, just jump to chapter number 12, uh, read verse 12 and 13. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Solomon at least understands from a head level where his joy is. But right now he says, I'm gonna try it all. I'm gonna try doing it the right way in the, in the eyes of man and the wrong way in the eyes of man until I might see what is that good for the sons of man, which they should do under heaven all the days of their life. And let me say this again. If anybody could figure that out, it was Solomon. It's not the 17-year-old waiting to turn 18 to prove his whole family wrong, that he can actually make himself happy doing X, Y, and Z. Listen, you have nowhere near the resources, ability, opportunity, or acumen that Solomon had. So you think, but when I get out of high school and I'm going to go and I know pastor says it and I know my parents say it and I know even Solomon himself said none of these things made him happy, but I am going to be happy doing these things. You have nowhere near the acumen Solomon did. Solomon was brilliant compared to the people in this room. And I'm including myself too. I'm not trying to be unkind. Solomon was far more wealthy than Jeff Bezos. And you'll never reach that level of, of, uh, of wealth that that man has. Uh, he had far more opportunities than any person in this room will ever be able to afford themselves. His situation was more primed and ready to find the happiness in wisdom and folly than your life and mine will ever be able to accomplish. And yet... If anybody could do it, Solomon could, but he can't. And that's important to remember. Let's keep reading what else he tried. Look at verse number four. He says, I made me great works. I builded me houses. I planted me vineyards. And uh, while I would say verse number two and three would deal with younger generations, I would say in verse number four, this would deal with more of an older generation, a, a man and a woman type, at least in my understanding, 
at least in my view of this particular text, but he seems to hit both genders right here very, very hard. He goes after great works, mighty accomplishments, building something. And uh, he says, I made me great works. And, uh, and then he goes on and says, hey, and he builded houses and he, he builded gardens and planted vineyards. And, and uh, while on one hand, I think that and we can see some of this in the coming verses, I think men are driven very much by accomplishment. And uh, we want to go out and conquer. We want to have dominion. We want to build the kingdom. We want to do, it's just a natural thing inside of us. Again, given to us in the garden, dominion was a good thing but it's been perverted because of the fall. Uh, But also right here, what I have seen in my years of being an adult, in my years of pastoring, in my years of counseling, I have seen that the latter part of verse number four has a far greater appeal uh, uh, to maybe the women on uh, when you're looking at this particular menu. When he says, hey, I built me houses and planted me vineyards. Um, uh, I've heard it a lot. I've heard it in counseling. I've heard it in my own relationships. I've heard it in my own understanding of my own voices where sometimes people say, you know, if I could just have that house. If I could just get that, la- that acre of land and, and have the goat or the chickens or the farmhouse sink that I saw in Magnolia Network, and if I could just be there, then my soul would be happy. But here's the thing. Solomon had better homes and gardens than better homes and gardens. Solomon had more beauty than anything you and I will ever create. Men, Solomon accomplished more things in his life than you and I will accomplish in all of our living. Because, I listen, I, I, I want to keep reading uh, down this list because I know, again, in our hearts we think, yeah, but, but I, if I had a chance to do it, then I could be happy. I know Solomon, he wasn't that interested in homes and gardens, but, you know, I could be. Well, let's just keep reading. He, goes, he keeps going and goes down the list of the things he tried. Look at verse 5. I made me gardens and orchards. I planted trees in them of all kinds of fruits. I made me pools of water to water therewith the wood that bringeth forth trees. He says, I did it all. I mean, I had the, I not only had the orchards and the vineyards, I had the ponds and uh, the koi fish. I might be exaggerating there, but he had all of these luxurious accomplishments on his land that oftentimes we think will make us happy. So here's our first takeaway. We got four tonight. Number one, a better and more beautiful situation in life will not fix the sick soul. Let me say that again, because I know we're, we're, we're moving through a text, but I really don't want us to lose the application. A better and more beautiful situation in life is not the answer to a sick soul. A sick soul is never going to be fixed by simply improving one's situation. That car won't satisfy The new house does get old and the water heater will break. The garden will die and grasshoppers will come. Goats and chickens make a mess and no one's going to eat the eggs or drink the milk anyway. So this grandiose idea that if I could, I have this sickness of soul, but if I could just be there, then the sickness of soul would go away. It's not true. But if I could just move to that plot of land, in that particular area, or that particular state, then the sickness of my soul will go away, sweetheart. We just have to do this. If I could just have that, it would salve my soul. You do realize that all of the interior saving, salving, filling is done by Jesus? And if you go into the acre of land with a sick soul and an emptiness where Jesus should fill, that won't fill it. It never will. 
It never has. If anybody could have done it, it was Solomon. And all of those things don't make him happy. But you think, yeah, but if I could, then I wouldn't be lonely. I wouldn't be unhappy. I wouldn't be discontented if I could just have that. But listen, the wisest man in the Bible calls all of those things vanity and vexation of spirit, a disease of the inner man. It doesn't make it better. It makes it worse. It's just more things to take care of. Solomon will say later on that his money is multiplied. So are problems. This is very important to listen to. The idea of improving my situation will somehow fix my soul. I know I'm just discontented with the job and the church and the place. And if we could just be here, then I wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. Either you're right or Solomon is. Solomon had higher acumen, more money, more opportunity, anything he wanted, he kept not from himself. He already tried menu item number one, and it did not make him happy. He's not me. Yeah, but he is far wiser than you. And God allowed him to go through this experience so he could test for us everything on the menu. Now, let's keep going back to the accomplishment side. Men, we're going to lean harder into us now. Look at verse number seven. It says, I got me servants and maidens. Man, I had staff. I had people under me. I had people whose paychecks I signed. They worked for me and had servants born in my house. So now he is not only a boss, but he's a generational boss. He's he's the boss of the parents, and now the kids are working for him as well. I also had great great possessions of great and small cattle above all that were in Jerusalem before me. I gathered me also silver and gold and the peculiar treasure of kings and of the provinces. I got me, look what else he tries. I got me singers, men, forgive me, I got me men singers and women singers to the delight of the sons of men as musical instruments and that of all sorts. This is so unique because we would think, why would he have to do that? Well, listen, he didn't have Alexa to play music, right? There was, there was no like music box. Uh, if he wanted to hear music, if anybody in Solomon's day wanted to hear music, someone needed to play it for him. That is, pardon me, that is a huge flex. Solomon says, yeah, I just hired a bunch of people to stand over there and play music for me anytime I wanted. Could you imagine having the wealth, not just to like buy a Bose speaker, but to buy a band that would be in your living room and at any time you're like, hey, I want this song, play it. That what an impressive situation in life. Music, and a lot of young people think the same thing. Oh, I just want to listen to my music. My parents don't want, it. it's where I find joy. It's not where you find joy. Solomon already tried all that. Verse number nine. So I was great this idea of accomplishments, and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And that's crucial, right? That's, that's, a, that's a fundamental building block foundation stone for the rest of the book, knowing that even though he's not right with God, even though he's wandering away, yet his wisdom still stays within him. Verse number 10. And whatsoever my eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy, but my heart rejoiced in all my labor. This And this was the portion of all my labor. So here's the second thing. The first thing he tells us is that an improving of your situation in life does not fix a sick soul. I would say this as well. Number two, amazing accomplishments still do not fix a sick soul. If your heart is empty, trying to climb to the top of whatever ladder and put your name on whatever building and go to whatever mountain and climb whatever uh, hill. Uh, None of those things fix the emptiness of a heart. Just read the synopsis of the next verse. Really, let me say this too. Uh, Verses 10, 9, 8, and 7, he hasn't spoken ill of them just yet, but he gives the the conclusion or the, uh, the critique in verse number 11. Look at it. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought. 
all the works, his physical accomplishments, all the cattle, great and small, peculiar treasure of kings and provinces, uh, the water that watered the wood that brings trees, the maidservants, the manservants, the generational enslavement of people. Uh, all of these things, I looked upon all the works that my hands had wrought, on all the labor, verse number 11, that I had labored to do, and behold, all was, what's the word? Vanity and vexation of spirit. That's the painful disease of the soul. And there was no profit. There was no point. I was no better for them. I was no better for having accomplished them. I was no better for having held them or having owned them. There is no profit under the sun. So listen, what is the profit for holding all the keys of industry and commerce? What's the benefit to the farmhouse sink if you have a disease in your soul? It doesn't fix it. In fact, Solomon seems to imply and seems to observe, is probably a better word, that it actually makes it worse. He says, this, he didn't just say, I was empty and this didn't fill it. He says, hey, I was empty, went to go fill it, and this right here is the disease of the soul. It's empty, it's vanity, it's vexation of spirit. Now listen, like I said, we have that, that, uh, that snorkel, if you will. Those things can bring comfort and enjoyment but they'll never fix your soul. So, so follow me here. This is the paradigm shift a Christian gets, right? As a Christian, we go in knowing that he is the satisfaction of our soul, that he is the lover of our soul, that he is the one from which we draw purpose and meaning. We find our identity. We, we move and breathe and have our being in him. And then we enter into life with no disease of soul. And man, he gives us that house or he gives us those things, or he provides for us in this particular way. Now, man, I have these resources to enjoy, and he'll talk about this at the end of the chapter, but I have these resources to enjoy, and this is the work of my labor, and man, God has blessed me with these things. I can use them for his glory, but the problem is that's not oftentimes where, uh, I, I want to be careful not, about not broad brushing. A lot of Christians walk in this, and that's a blessing, right? But equally, a lot of Christians walk over here where they say, I've just got a disease in my soul, there's an emptiness, and I'll fill it with stuff. I'll fill it with accomplishments. I'll fill it with a better situation. And that does not satisfy. Whereas over here, those things, like I mentioned, that fruit tree that you grow in your backyard, that you use to feed your family and that you use to bless other people with, that can have eternal purpose. That, that can have a benefit. That doesn't have to be vanity and vexation of spirit. Jesus, everything he touches can radically be transformed to partner with him and have purpose and value. Even a cup of cold water. I love the example. Just a cup of cold water has a reward in heaven. And so all these things that Solomon is saying, yeah, menu item, nope, menu item, nope, menu item, nope. Jesus says, yeah, but I can transform that so long as it doesn't become your idol, so long as you don't think it fixes your empty soul, so long as you use it for the purpose in which I gave it to you, yeah, it can have purpose and even eternal value. So let's keep reading. So not only does accomplishments not satisfy, improving situations don't satisfy, but now let's keep reading verse number 12. And I turn myself to behold wisdom and madness and folly. So we already saw two of those. We already saw wisdom and folly, but now madness. So wisdom is, hey, this is how life works. Folly is, I'm just going to go do the opposite and do whatever I feel. And then madness is just absolute lunacy. And he says, listen, I turned myself to behold it all. I wanted to try the ridiculous. I wanted to try the wrong. And I wanted to try the right. For what can the man do that cometh after the king? This is important. He's going to change his tone here. Even that which hath been already done. So what Solomon is going to start thinking about is his legacy. 
the rest of this chapter, at least a large portion of the rest of this chapter, is going to deal with Solomon's observation about what he leaves behind. Notice what he said. For what can the man do that cometh after the king, even that which hath, all, uh, which hath been already done? So Solomon's starting to think about, well, when I die and all the stuff I've done and all this stuff that I thought would satisfy and I built and gained through wisdom and excellence, what's going to happen to it? And that's a really important question. Verse number 13. Then I saw that wisdom excelleth folly as far as light excelleth darkness. So there's this brief moment where Solomon kind of, he doesn't necessarily come up for air because he's still very much underwater. But he says, hey, it's better to be wise than foolish. I tried them both, and I'm telling you, uh, I, I'm still going to tell you it's empty, but I am telling you that one is better than the other. So it's kind of like, yeah, yeah, the menu is not great, but if you were going to eat there, I'd pick this. It's kind of the tone that he's taking. Wisdom does excel folly. It is the better menu option. Verse 14, the wise man's eyes are in his head. So the, man, the wise man can see where he's going, but the fool walketh in darkness. And I myself perceived also that one, now here's why he's still underwater. One event happeneth to them all. So he says, yes, menu, uh, menu option one is better than menu option two or whatever menu item we're on. But wisdom is better than foolishness, but they both end in the same place. Now, you probably can guess what he's talking about. He's talking about death, and we'll see that clearer in the next couple of coming verses. But keep reading. He said, then said I in mine, my heart, as it happeneth to the fool, so it happeneth even to me. And notice his understanding that he is a wise person. He said the fool, and now he doesn't say, and as it happens to the wise man, but as it happens to me. And then notice the question that he asks. Oh, this is good. And why was I then more wise? Then I said in my heart that this also is vanity. He says, listen, I spent my life. Now, again, he did try foolishness. He did try just flagrant wrong living and madness. And he tried being wise and he spent his life being wise. And it's his wisdom that got him all this wealth and power and strength and all the stuff that he has. And then he says, but listen, why was I then more wise if we were both going to die? If we both don't leave a legacy that time will erase, what is the benefit of being wiser than someone else? As a wise man, you spend your years trying to do it right, trying to build well, trying to accomplish powerful, amazing accomplishments and feats. You're trying to do something great, and the fool is over here just wasting his life, getting drunk, you know, living off of welfare, just doing his own thing, doesn't care about it. He has no eyes in his head, but you're over here trying to do it right, but you both go to the same grave. So Solomon observes. Keep reading. Verse 16. And it's not just that they die. He says, for there is no remembrance of the wise man more than of the fool forever. Seeing that which now is in the days to come shall all be forgotten. How dieth the wise man? Here's the answer. As the fool. Listen, the fool's forgotten. So is the wise man. Here's our third truth for the day, right? Number one. Our situation does not fix a sick soul. Number two, our accomplishments won't fix a sick soul. Number three, the wisdom of the world grants you no special protections. You're just as vulnerable as a fool. I'll read it to you in 1 Corinthians. You can go there if you'd like, but you can just stay where you are. We'll come back. 1 Corinthians 3.18 says, Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you seem to be wise in this world, let him become as a fool that he may be wise. Here's what he said. 
The, the, the doing it right the way the world works, not the mind of God wisdom, but the doing it right the way the world works. He says, go ahead and set that aside and become a fool so that you can be wise in the eyes of God. Verse 19 says, for the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he taketh the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knoweth the thoughts of the wise that they are vain. Therefore, let no man glory in God tells us that the wisdom of this world purchases you no special filling, no special protection, no special uh, escape from the inevitable crushing realities of life because wise men bury children. Wise men get cancer. Wise men face bankruptcy and every wise man goes to the grave. And then you get to probably the... In, in, in my opinion, a capstone, maybe the capstone verse of the whole book is verse 17. It's really, it's, his, his, it's kind of his, his final, you know, full statement. And it's just, it, you can feel the hurt of this man. He says, therefore, I hated life because the work that is wrought under the sun is grievous unto me for all his vanity and vexation of spirit. He literally hated life because everything on the menu wouldn't satisfy. He tried it all. He tried every corner. Wisdom, madness, folly. And he was no better off than the fool. All of his stuff would decay as well. He'd go to the grave just like the fool. Why was I therefore more wise? I love that question. Look at verse, now let me say this. Okay, put the snorkel back in, right? Isn't it? Is it, don't, as a Christian, when you walk in the ways of God, doesn't your life quality, just the quality of your life, doesn't it get better? <laughs> like when you start doing it the way God would have you do it, he starts to bless, life starts to work better. I mean, it's like trying to, the wisdom of the world is like trying to fit the square peg in the circle, right? It just doesn't work. Then you start doing it the way God does it. Man, it's just, oh Lord, this is so much better, right? But here's why Solomon is exercising just the wisdom of the world. And he is, it is, there's no benefit to it. He says, why am I therefore more wise? Look at verse 18. Yea, I hated all my labor which I had taken under the sun. Because, here's the legacy part, right? Because I should leave it unto the man that shall be after me. You've heard it said, I think every preacher at one point or another has said it, there's no U-Haul following a hearse. Although, honestly, one time on my way to Lancaster, I legitimately did see a U-Haul trailer being pulled by a hearse. And I was like, oh, there goes that illustration. But the, the, the fact of the matter still remains that no one gets to take their stuff with you. Solomon had more stuff. And all that meant was the pain was deeper. Listen, if you live your whole life for stuff, the fact of the matter is Solomon tells us you can't protect it and you certainly can't keep it. You can't even, and here's where legacy starts to come in. Not only can you not take it with you, not only can you not keep it, here's what Solomon just said and he'll say again a few times. You can't even make sure the guy coming after you doesn't waste it. You can live your whole life building something, saving something, skipping vacations and skipping family time to storehouse more and more and more and more. Why? To leave it to some guy who's going to waste it? it? It's a painful reality. Now, I would hope this isn't true of the people in this room, but uh, let's, let's put ourselves in the mind of the world, right? You can spend your entire life living right, you know, trying to build a business and an empire and you die and someone marries your wife and they waste all that money. There's no protecting your legacy. And that's actually the, the fourth thing we're going to learn. Number one, better situations don't fix a sick soul. Number two, accomplishments will not fill an empty soul. Number three, the wisdom of the world grants you no special protections. Number four, leaving a legacy 
or rather living for a legacy is a maddening and impossible endeavor. And, and, and that is what, there's actually a quote, I can't remember it right now, but, you know, they say like, a, you know, a young man lives for stuff and a middle-aged man lives for people and an older man lives for legacy. I would say all of that is empty, right? Living for stuff as a young man, chasing that car and getting the job and doing your thing, that's empty, right? It's already on the menu, we've already seen it. But then living for others, even that outside of Christ is, is empty, right? Living for a relationship, trying to get that girl, trying to get that guy. But then even like the noble, you know, I'm going to live for a legacy. Well, even that is indefensible. Even that, you can't even make sure. You're not even here to protect it. And notice how Solomon, he, he goes through this. He, he's going to rationalize all this for us. Look at verse 20. He says, therefore, I went about to cause my heart to despair of all the labor which I took under the sun. For there is a man whose labor is in wisdom and in knowledge and in equity. There's a man who did all this the right way. Yet to a man that hath not labored therein, shall he leave it for his portion? This also is vanity and a great evil. So it's not even fair. That's not fair at all. Solomon, I'm going to build my whole empire to leave it to some knucklehead. In fact, the guy who comes after Solomon ends up splitting the kingdom. I can't even protect my own legacy. I can build all this and do all this for what? It erases everything. The fool is forgotten. The wise man is forgotten. All of my stuff, it's forgotten. And he says it's maddening. It's, it's vanity and a great evil. Verse 22. For what hath man of all his labor? What does he get for all this? For a lifetime of losing yourself to a faithless corporation. What does he get? For what hath the man of all his labor and of the vexation of his heart? wherein he hath labored under the sun. What does he get for all the hours he lost? For all the blood, sweat, and tears poured into some other company or his own company. What does he get for all of it? For all his days are sorrows. Man, he's waking up at four and dragging himself to the office or out into the, you know, to the work field and he's breaking his back and he's robbing his family of time. And, and for what? And his travail is grief. It's hard work. Yea, his heart taketh no, not rest in the night. He's up, he's working the graveyard shift, right? Why? To get ahead. Of what? To, to accomplish something. For what? Notice what Solomon, again, if you'd have asked a fool this, he'd have said, well, so I could have my stuff. Well, ask him the next question. So you can do what with it? Well, I can have it. For what? I don't know. So I can have it. Right? Doesn't go any further. But Solomon retaining his wisdom is crucial to the understanding of this book. That Solomon says, yeah, I've got it, and I've got more than anybody else has. And then he says this, this is also vanity. End of verse 23. So for just a second, Solomon is going to actually break character, and he's going to give us a much-needed moment of reprieve. Um, and, and really the, the snorkel side of things, he, he's kind of breathing some heaven air here for a second. But before we move on, just understand this. What Solomon just taught us about legacy is very, very important because legacy is a noble idol. Think about this. Let's put it in my context, right? If, and you'll see it more clearly in my context than maybe even your own. So, so just follow the illustration here. Let's say I wake up each morning and I say, you know what, man, I want to leave a legacy. I want, by the time I finish pastoring Faith Baptist Church, for Faith Baptist Church to say, that's the greatest pastor we're ever going to have. And all of you just went, ooh. And you should. Because how selfish is that? How man-centered is that? How proud is that? I want to be the best pastor here so that they give me more money so I can retire early. 
Ugh. Why is that gross on me and not on you, though? Why can you live to build something that has way less eternal purpose? Because it, it's gross on me, and it should be gross on me. No pastor should live for a legacy. Well, I hope when I die, they put, my, they put a, a bronze statue in the courtyard of me so that everybody can remember me. I hope they put my name on the building. No, it's gross, right? How empty is it on the other side, too? It's just as empty. And Solomon says, I spent my whole life building something. I'm going to leave to someone who doesn't even care about it. Didn't even build it. Didn't even defend it. Doesn't care for it. And they didn't even have the same. I can't even tell if they're going to be wise or foolish. And that's why living for a legacy is the noble idol. It's a trap still. Now, you ought to live for your family and relationships and the Lord. And a wise man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. You ought to live so you can set them up and take care of them and help them. That's all fine. That all can be good. But living for legacy is gross. And you can see it on me, but I hope we can see it on ourselves as well. Uh, Let's keep reading. Again, he's going to take a break. He's going to catch some breath. He's going to come up for air. And this is important. Verse number 24, there is nothing better for a man. Now, I I would argue with Solomon. Solomon, in a worldly perspective, says, this is the best it gets. Well, under the sun, this is the best it gets. But for us, living for eternity is the best that it gets. But here's what he says. There's nothing better for a man than that he should eat and drink and that he should make his soul enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw that it was from the hand of God. So for, for just a brief moment, and he doesn't do it a lot in this book. He doesn't some, but not much. He says this. He says, hey, how about... Instead of just stacking everything up for a legacy and storehouse and everything, why don't you just go and enjoy the blessings that God has given you? Let me bring it into our circle, right? Let me bring it to, our, uh, to us. Oh, kids, we can't go on vacation this year. We're trying to save up so you can have, you know, we can have family time. Isn't that what? Oh, hey, kids, I can't spend time with you right now. I'm going to work so that we can have more stuff. But Solomon says, you know what's better? Actually enjoying, like, taking your paid time off, like actually enjoying if God has blessed you financially, then enjoying those days. Solomon is saying here, essentially, and it's a very, it's a very under the sun kind of good news, but it's still, still valid. He says, hey, you can live your life and stack it all up and then die and nobody gets it, right? Somebody else gets it. Or in your life, you can enjoy what God has blessed you with and you can prepare and provide and help and, and be the man that, that God wants you to. And he says, this is from the hand of God. If God has blessed you, then you ought not live such stingy lives that you never, ever get to use what God has blessed you with. Well, I can't give because I'm saving. For what? And you should save. You absolutely should save. I'm not advocating for not saving at all. Again, a just man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. There will come a day when I can no longer pastor. I need to be prepared for that financially. It doesn't mean I won't serve Jesus. I just know that I can't lead a congregation. Uh, I will lack certain abilities at that point. And I've seen some other uh, senior pastors who've fallen into that category. I don't want to be there, right? So I do need to save. But that doesn't mean that I should be so focused on legacy and storehousing and stacking it all up and hoarding it just so I can have it that my kids never get to enjoy me. My kids never get to go on vacation and I never get to provide for my own. I know that that's kind of a, 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 kind of a, a fleshly view and it, it, it is because Solomon's saying it, but he also makes that one important statement that this was from the hand of God. So it's true. God has provided for us. We should use and enjoy those things. That's a blessing. It's a benefit. It's part of God's grace for you to go on vacation. It's part of God's grace um, uh, for you to be able to enjoy that that time with your family or that date night with your wife. Uh, How much better is it to, like, if you could say at the end of your life, man, I had $1,000 more or I took my kids on vacation when they were seven, eight, and nine. 
Now, again, you should have savings. So please don't, don't take this to mean, well, I'm just going to live on credit. Pastor said you only live once. No, that's not what I'm saying at all. That's not what I'm saying at all. Solomon's just saying it's better to enjoy what you have, enjoy what God has blessed you with, than it is to just storehouse it in this stingy legacy mindset that you never get to enjoy your children or take that time off or things of that nature. Keep reading verse number uh, 25. Uh, For who can eat or else who can hasten hereunto more than I? For God giveth to a man that is good in his sight wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he giveth travail. Here's what the sinner is supposed to do, to gather and to heap up. And that's, that's important. That's what the sinner is going to do. Why? That he may give it to him that is good before God. This also is vanity and vexation of spirit. So that idea of just heaping up, why? So somebody can, else can use it. But as a child of God, if God's blessing you and providing for you, then you ought to use that for both your family and the kingdom of God. So listen, the, the final takeaway would be this. Enjoy if God has blessed you. These things, some of these things, not all of these things, some of them were bad, right? We, we saw wine being on that list and, and folly and uh, madness uh, being on that list. Some of the things are bad, but I would venture to say that most of the things on the menu, they're not bad. They're certainly not going to fix an empty soul. A better situation is not a bad thing. If God provides that for you and you can accomplish that and it's within the will of God, hey, go for it. I, I hate to say it, but if God has a plan for you to move, you ought to be moving for the sake of doing ministry you ought not say, yeah, we found this house. Is there a church? I have no idea. How to tell God's, God hasn't led in that situation, right? If we lead with stuff and covetousness, and then we want to fit him into the plan. But again, there have been people even on our ministry who said, yeah, God's calling me to this ministry. We'll find our house. Hey, love it. I don't love it, but hey, if God calls you, that's fine. But don't live for stuff. But these things aren't necessarily bad if God gives them to you. A better situation or even accomplishments. Hey, you ought to, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with thy might. Accomplish great things for God. Uh, Become uh, a great leader. Uh, Move up in your company. Uh, Climb the ladder for the glory of God. Use the situation and station that God has given you so you can share the gospel with others and so that you might be able to in leadership. That's far better than just sitting home, you know, collecting government money. You ought to go do something, accomplish something, so long as God gets the glory out of it. But again, if that's where you think your joy is going to be found and your identity is going to be found, you won't find it there. And again, the world's wisdom grants you no special protection and living for a legacy is maddening. You'll never be able to protect it. You don't know who you hand it off to, whether they deserve it or not. But Solomon has some powerful things to teach us. They are painful, but there's some things we can look at. I don't know what on the menu might have looked good to your flesh, but I hope that we at least have enough spiritual discernment and discipline to say, you know what? Solomon tried it and didn't want it. You know, there's some people that you just trust their, their food uh, ability. You know what I'm talking about? There's some people, they recommend a restaurant, and you're like, eh, might be good. But then there's some people, um, Brother Fernando was one of those particular to me. Everywhere Brother Fernando recommended to go eat was just absolutely knock your socks off food. Everywhere he recommended, I would go, right? Because he had a great uh, understanding of food. Well, listen, if anybody has a great understanding of life and what will make you happy, it's Solomon. So take his word for it. You don't need to try that restaurant. You don't need to try that item. Young people, you don't need to go after laughter and mirth and just having a good time. Uh, Ladies, you don't need the better situation. Men, you don't need the great accomplishments to find that identity for your soul. That is found only and solely and will only ever be found in the person of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, guide us and bless us. Thank you for the study tonight.